Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting edge, state of the art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca/slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode contains descriptions of wartime atrocities. Might not be suitable for everybody. Olena Goncharova, Edmonton-based correspondent for the Kiev Independent, uh, an English-language Ukrainian news organization Welcome to Shortcuts. Uh, thank you so much, Jesse. Olena, today we are going to talk about war crimes via TikTok. We are going to also talk about the Pay Me for Clickbait Act. Sorry, that's I uh, got that wrong. It's the Online News Act. That's right. Welcome to Shortcuts, Olena, where we talk shit about the news. Thank you. I'm happy to be here today. We're happy to have you. This episode is brought to everybody by Curtis Robichaux, Alex Pierce, Carla McGrath, Megan Bacos, Matthew Wakeham, Gustavo Simon, Lauren Panzarella, and Rowan. Hi there, my name is Rowan, and I work for a nonprofit in Vancouver, which is on the unceded lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. I'm a Canada Land supporter because I really appreciate the critical content. I think there's a real lack of critical media coverage in Canada, and so I really appreciate the insights. And I love that it gives a platform to smart folks like Nora and Emily and Fatima, who are able to share their brilliance with us all. Thanks. Ukraine's blunt and brutal message. Russia is committing atrocities, and the world seems powerless to stop it. 
Some Ukrainian officials are calling this the clearest proof yet of war crimes being committed. Buildings torched, bodies in the street. The horror of the invasion laid bare as Russian troops retreat around Kyiv. The world reacts to shocking images of what Ukrainian officials call a massacre. Olena, it's been a trying week for anyone following what's happening in Ukraine, but I think there's a pretty big difference between how this news comes across to most of us and how it comes across to a Ukrainian Canadian. I want to talk with you about your take on the Canadian coverage of the atrocities in Bucha, but I first just want to orient our listeners with the kind of work that you do. It's kind of remarkable to learn that you are the only North American correspondent for the Kyiv Independent? That is correct. My work uh, here in Canada for the Kyiv Independent, we can say, has two facets to it. And the first one, especially since the full-scale invasion started in February, I had to make sure that all the information that my colleagues are able to gather on the ground, I will be able to quickly post to our website and other social media pages because, of course, during the first days, the internet sometimes was really patchy on the ground in Ukraine. And so I was here to ensure that everything that my colleagues collect, uh, everything that we've gathered, our readers can immediately access on different platforms. And of course, the second passage, since I, I am here in Canada and specifically in Edmonton, that boasts to have one of the biggest Ukrainian communities, I am, uh, I've been constantly in touch uh, with a lot of uh, members of the community to make sure that I hear their voices, that I report about what's going on on our side of the pond. I recently did a story about a first Ukrainians who were fleeing the war and arriving here in Edmonton because we feel like this is also an important part of the story that, that we need to highlight. If we talk about the things that the Ukrainians and the world discovered over the weekend after the Russian forces retreated uh, from the Kiev Oblast, that was, that was horrifying, uh, that was sickening, and I think that the world needs to know about it, needs to understand what's going on, because even though the pictures from some of those towns, I'm sure most of the readers and listeners have already seen, uh, we still need to explain to people what is that Russia has been doing there, what is a war crime. And if we talk about Canadian coverage specifically, I really liked... Uh, some of the articles that CBC ran because they had a really good and detailed explanation of what was happening there, what can be a war crime, how difficult it is to prove that something is a war crime, because unfortunately that will be something that we'll have to deal with in the future. So I was happy to see that. But on the other hand, I was also a little bit saddened by the fact that still many, many articles once in a while can call the war in Ukraine a situation in Ukraine or crisis in Ukraine, which I think is not the correct word. And everybody needs to understand that there is a war going on there and call it as it is. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's the same CBC coverage that I heard, but um, I think credit is due to front burner for really getting into international law and the difficulties of taking what what is just plainly clear evidence of war crime, but the difficulty involved in actually 
in actually proving that and how infrequently that happens. They did a great episode about that. But you're also talking about coverage, like they're, just to go through a few, there's a Globe and Mail headline, ready or not, Canada must now face the crisis in Ukraine head on. CBC headline, Russia intensifies attacks as humanitarian crisis in Ukraine deepens. Uh, another Globe and Mail headline, the crisis in Ukraine is pulling monetary policy in multiple directions. Certainly it's a crisis, uh, certainly it's a situation, but I think we have a word for this and that word is war. Yes, exactly. And I feel it's very unfair to many Ukrainians in Ukraine and to us Ukrainians abroad, hearing that the world still thinks that this is a situation, then, you know, we can ask the question, was the Second World War also a situation and a crisis? Of course it was, but at the same time, I feel that when we attribute the word then people understand the grave concerns of it as well, you know. Olena, you are practicing a kind of journalism that I I don't think we've seen thus far, like there have been aspects of it in other conflicts, but what has been happening in the way that this is being documented is very different than, you know, crisis, war correspondence as we know it, an embedded reporter with the troops in Vietnam, all of the cliches that come to mind. There's some aspect of that, but a lot of what we're getting is this combination of first source documentation, videos, from actual battlegrounds, videos as things happen, often shot by participants or civilians right. that then get disseminated, sometimes going through a filter of propaganda, sometimes direct communication via phone with people. Some might ask, how can you cover this from Edmonton? There are many foreign correspondents who are in Poland or even in Ukraine, but for very good reasons are not going to where the violence is, or at least not until it's calmed down. And they're doing the same kind of work of fact-checking, verification. You know, Russia claimed that these bodies, these graves in Bucha, that had nothing to do with them. It was after they pulled out. I believe it was the New York Times that used satellite imagery to prove the timeline. That's right. So this is a different kind of war coverage than we've seen before. And given the sheer level of bullshit and misinformation out there, it's really crucial work. How effective have you found you can be half a world away? It's a really good question because sometimes I, I honestly feel that uh, I'm really useless here. <laughs> and it would, be, it would be much better if I was on the ground helping my colleagues. Maybe it would also make me feel a little bit better and had, you know, easier time for me knowing that I'm close to home. On the other hand, I think being away, rather far away from Ukraine, helps me to maintain, you know, this cold mind because I don't see all the horrific images myself. I don't go there. I don't travel there. And so I have time to sit and carefully analyze what I see in order to make sure that our fact-checking is up to standard and that we do not post things that were not verified. Uh, because just like you mentioned, it is very important these days to make sure that disinformation and propaganda on both sides, because of course it's going from the Ukrainian side as well, and we need to understand that, that we do not allow that to penetrate our coverage. So I'm doing this, and uh, fact-checking has been a really important aspect of my work um, because we do receive a lot of 
videos, a lot of pictures, a lot of information from the insiders that has been gathered. And our role as a journalist is to ensure that what we publish is actually true and it's not something that somebody, you know, uh, just make up. And just as was the pictures from Bucha, it was confirmed uh, by satellite images uh, that the New York Times analyzed. And yesterday it was also confirmed by the British intelligence that indeed some of those bodies uh, have been laying on the ground, even in the same position for as long as three weeks. And we can say for sure that um, some of those bodies that the Ukrainian military and later the journalists from a lot of media organizations discovered had clear signs of torture. Some of them had their hands tied behind their backs. And there was uh, specifically one group of bodies found where women were naked and partly burned. I'm sorry about this very graphic description, but that's that's what it was. And uh, right now it will be up to a specific institution to determine what exactly happened to them. The work that you're doing is, I, I don't know how to describe it, but, but traumatizing. It's work that... <laughs> You know, the lie goes around the world three times before the truth gets out of bed. It's so hard. Just the diligence of verifying this and opposing propaganda, it's so easy to put out some false message that like, oh, this happened after Russian troops pulled out of the Kiev area, out of Bucha. It's a ridiculous lie. How people's bodies with their hands tied behind their backs, well, who did that? But then it is the work of a journalist to say, okay, let's, let's, let's build a timeline. Let's unpack this. That is difficult work for any journalist to do, but a journalist who has a a personal connection to the to the country, to the people there, I have to imagine that it's especially so. I don't bring this up, or I, I suppose it is an insensitive thing to bring up, but but it's something that I do want to ask you as a journalist. It's absolutely understandable that this is going to affect you emotionally. It's absolutely understandable that you have opinions about this. Um, you were very expressive about that on Twitter. You say, we are deeply hurt, we're in pain. Right. But you also say, Ukraine will win. Ukraine will always remember their fallen heroes. Ukraine will never forget what Russia has done to us. I bring this up not to pass judgment on you saying these things, but I do want to, I don't know, explore them with you. Right. Um, it's been extremely stressful this past 41 days of the full-scale invasion, because I have to remind each of our listeners that, indeed, the war started not on February 24th. And the war started eight years ago, in 2014, uh, with the annexation of Crimea. However, during that time, the war was largely going on in the eastern parts of the country only. And so I feel that many people including myself, I was in Kiev at the time, did not quite feel or understand what it is. We heard reports, we saw pictures and videos, we had to report about fallen soldiers and killed civilians, but that was still rather far from us. While what happened late on February 24th and followed 
was so traumatizing because I remember very clearly that that night, February 24th, when I was listening to the United Nations Security Council meeting, and they were still talking about how the diplomatic solution can be found. And I received first reports from two of my colleagues and my friend in Kiev, in my hometown, that they heard really loud explosions. And then we saw news a little bit later rolling in pictures that showed missiles hitting the residential buildings in my hometown. I cannot quite express what I felt at that moment, but something, I don't know, something broke inside me. It it was so painful because you see how your city is destroyed, how people that you love have to go and hide in the basements or in the bomb shelters, and you are miles and miles away and can do nothing. And so it has been like this every day since. And what I do as a journalist, because of course we need to be fair and objective and keep our emotions to ourselves, no matter how difficult it is to report on things that we witness every day. So every day I allow myself like half an hour to feel all the pain and all the emotions that I have inside, to look at the videos or pictures just to make sure that I won't forget anything of that. And yes, I do use Twitter as one platform where I can express what I personally feel as a citizen of Ukraine and not as a journalist because I I cannot allow myself to do anything of that on any other platforms, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so I think this this little uh, window, (laughs) you know, I, I call it like window of pain or window of grief, helps me to maintain what I've been doing this whole time. Otherwise, it gets it gets too difficult because it is so unfair and horrific to even comprehend what what's going on in Ukraine and what's going on to people I know or might know that you might not be able to do your job properly. And I cannot allow that to happen. You use Twitter not as an extension of your journalism or as, or as a platform for your opinions, but as a f- place to be a human being. Yes. I think that a lot of the time people who cover conflicts abroad or even yourself covering this war until very recently, the common complaint is, why don't more people care about this? I'm going to keep covering it so more people will care about it. In other times, people who cover conflicts will say that they're trying to get people to see it from a different point of view. I don't know that those driving motivations apply here right now. This is not a war that people are ignoring. This is not a war where we're getting like, well, on the one hand this and on the other hand that. It's almost unanimous that the coverage understands that Ukraine is the victim uh, and is defending itself. That's near universally unanimous. What then is the goal of the coverage? Are you documenting this just so there's a public record or 
you know, some essential ideas about journalism is that we inform people so that action can be taken, so that people know something. Here in Canada, Minister Melanie Jolie said these are war crimes. Her government won't expel Russian diplomats. Right. So what does it matter if everybody knows if that's the end of it? Well, I think the two main things was our coverage is first, indeed, just like you said, it is to document everything that's that's going on. Because I remember during first days of this uh, invasion, I was contacted by one of my friends uh, who is an editor in Sarajevo. And of course, people in Sarajevo can relate to us because they lived through a uh, horrible, horrible war in the 90s. And uh, she said, I think what, what might help you, and it's not really, you know, help in like traditional sense, because covering war is difficult no matter what, but just keep working, keep reporting, keep gathering stories so that one day people that have been hurting you this whole time can go to the International Criminal Court and you will be there and you might see how some of your coverage helps to expose people who harmed your fellow Ukrainians. And I took this piece of advice very seriously, and I think that's that's exactly what what we are doing. Uh, just making sure that every every story, as much as we can cover it, of course, because we are rather a small newsroom, but every story is heard uh, because that is eventually our goal. We know that this war will be in history books, and we need to make sure that it's presented as fairly as possible. And secondly, even though Ukraine is in spotlight right now, unfortunately, we do know that uh, there will be time when Ukraine will not be seen, the word Ukraine will not be seen in the headlines as often as we would like, because that's exactly what we experienced in 2014 and 2015 when the war was already there in Donbass in eastern Ukraine. But unless something really big happened, something really bad happened, it was not any more of any interest to Western media. And we just, we cannot, we cannot allow that to happen one more time. Because we feel like what was going on in 2014 and 2015, it was, it was already bad, but it was not bad enough for Ukraine's Western allies to react appropriately. Olena, thank you for talking with me about this. Yeah, thank you for, for asking this. It's, it's a tough topic to talk about, but it, it is important. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. 
It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. Olena, we take some time on this show to make sure that people don't miss news stories that, you know, sometimes important stuff slips between the cracks. We call it duly noted. Do you have something to duly note today? Uh, yes, actually, I think I do. And what I'd like to talk about is this special program that Canadian government put in place for Ukrainians. It is a special visa program that allows Ukrainians to receive temporary residence in Canada and also obtain a work permit for three years. Well, this is really uh, great that this program has been put in place. I feel there are a few problems with it that not many media are talking about. First of all, one thing to remember is what we are dealing with right now is the greatest refugee crisis since Second World War. And according to the latest figures that I saw on the United Nations website, it is over 4 million Ukrainians that have already left the country. Of course, many people look to Canada in order to find this safe haven. What I think is a big problem is that this special visa that the government announced, it also took almost a month to bring all the details for this program. And they will mostly be women with small children and perhaps older people. Because as you know, in Ukraine, men 18 to 60 now are not allowed to leave the country uh, because we have martial law imposed. And so with that comes a question how can a mother with, say, two children come to Canada? Okay, she can obtain a visa and come here, that's fine. But then she needs to settle in. She needs to find a job. She needs to bring her kids to daycare. But this program has no financial incentive. Basically, the government does not provide any financial help whatsoever for the people coming over. They have no guarantees of, of life here. 
yeah, of course they can come, but where will they stay? Who will look after the kids when mother has to find a look for the job? And those are not the questions that media brings up, unfortunately, here. And I feel this is, this is a really big problem, and the federal government has not really explained much about it. I, I feel it's not very fair for people fleeing war to come to this, you know, safe and prosperous country, but understand that they have no guarantees here at all. Duly noted. I'd like to duly note something that came to my attention this week. Listeners may remember, in fact, Commons did an excellent episode about this, this uh, atrocious situation in long-term care, specifically at the Heron long-term care home in Montreal, this privately held long-term care facility, where over 150 residents were just living in abject, shameful neglect. In the early days of COVID, this was just an abandoned facility. And um, it's really to this country's shame that we neglected and abandoned our aged neighbors. It was just a horrific scene. And as the story went, the province knew nothing about it until Aaron Durfell of the Montreal Gazette wrote about it. And that's when the premier found out about it. And that would have been bad enough. But it's actually much worse than that. And this week, Radio Canada came into possession of an email that reveals that Premier Legault's government knew about this 10 days earlier. 10 days earlier, they were told that there were almost no staff to take care of 154 residents. It is very problematic, and the word urgent was in capital letters in the subject line. So... Kudos to Radio Canada for staying on this. There is no detail too small to pursue. There is no news cycle or amount of time between when the story first got people's attention uh, where, oh, let's, let's forget about this. We need to know everything that went wrong. Duly noted. While news has been shared widely, journalists and newsrooms are not earning what they should from their work. Now, tech giants like Meta and Google are, are making a lot of investment, investments in Canada. You know what? We love that. And, and guys keep investing in our country. But at the same time, they continue to profit from the sharing and distribution of Canadian news content without really having to pay for it. So with this bill, we're seeking to address this market imbalance. Olena, the Online News Act was just tabled. It's a big deal, I promise. This is a transformational piece of legislation for the Canadian news media. And we're going to do a deep dive into this legislation on Monday's episode of Canada Land, documenting not only the bill, but also how it has already transformed this country's news media. Even before it came, right. we knew it was coming, the industry knew it was coming, and that's already prompted all kinds of transformational change in ways that have thus far been kept pretty much totally secret. And we'll be revealing a lot of those secrets on Monday. But today, right as the bill has just been introduced and we've gotten a look at it, what I'm curious about and what I want to talk with you about is the news coverage of this bill. 
I want to provide some context to listeners because when we talk about the coverage of this legislation, there has been a ton of media coverage leading up to this bill, a ton of media over the years leading up to this bill. I'm not just talking about news coverage. Uh, Canadians will remember there was this national campaign against Facebook by a lobby group where Mark Zuckerberg's face was turned into a wanted poster. Like there was like a mugshot of Zuck on giant posters that were, was plastered in cities across Canada, labeling him a news thief, wanted news thief. And Canadians will also remember there was this PR campaign where all the newspapers from rival news organizations all got together and strategized together. And they all agreed that one day they would just run a blank front page on their print editions. Right. And it was kind of this threat to Canadians. Like, this is what a world without news will look like if we don't have legislation that forces Facebook and Google to pay us for news. Did you catch that when they ran this these blank newspapers? It was a strange thing to see. Yes, I think I remember that. And and even when you said there was a poster with uh, Mark Zuckerberg, I, I do believe I, I saw photos of that circulating online as well. <laughs> Actually, in Ukraine, we use this tactics with blank front pages too when we want to show that media is in danger. I read a little bit more about this bill yesterday, and it was quite interesting. I, I had a lot of questions after after reading about this. I can imagine so. There are, like, kind of nothing but questions, because, like, there was a ton of media about this bill leading up to the bill, demanding the bill, and then the bill comes out, the law becomes a reality, and, like, crickets. Indeed. Not zero coverage, but very muted and buried coverage. Like, you know, like you really had to look for this to find it in newspapers anyhow. I went to the Globe and Mail's website. There was nothing about it on the front page uh, of the website the day the news broke or today, the day after as we tape this. I went to the National Post's website. There was a little news item on the front page. That's right. I read it too. Did you notice, um, you know that thing they do where they tell you at the top of the story how long it'll take you to read the story? Yes. It said one minute. Oh, wow. <laughs> this was not a deep dive. This was uh, five five short paragraphs. And as the National Post covers this bill that they've just like spilled, you know, gallons of ink lobbying for, they don't even mention in these five paragraphs that they were one of the newspapers lobbying for it and that they're going to be one of the beneficiaries of it. You know, like there's this line, both Google and Facebook Meta have agreements with a number of Canadian publishers. There's no disclosure and we're one of them. It's really strange. I, I won't pretend that I think it's strange. Look, you might think that after thousands and thousands of stories leading up to it, that success would be cause for them to be like, we got it. You know, thank you, Trudeau government. Now Facebook and Google are going are gonna to keep our lights on. Why might they not want to say stuff like that? Why might the coverage of success be a bit muted, do you think? I was rather surprised uh, yesterday when I um, decided to find a little bit more about this bill because, exactly, I found very few articles and maybe one of them actually had a more or less detailed explanation and some experts' comments on why it can be potentially good and why it can be potentially bad or even dangerous for media freedom and independence. Yeah, so... This is all about as clear as mud, and I think it's intentionally so. The complexity of this is not because it's like, 
it needs to be complicated. It's not because this is really, really complicated stuff. It's a way of distributing accountability. Like now who's involved in the media in Canada? It's not just, oh, the government. It's some parts are heritage. Some parts are CRA. Some parts are CRTC. Now Google's involved. Facebook's involved. There's arbitrators that might get involved. When you ask a question, who designates? Is it CRTC status? Well, it can be. It could also be CRA status. You know, it was sold to Canadians as it was tabled by Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez that this is like great transparency. He used that word transparency again and again. And then we noted and Michael Geis noted and others that we still don't know the amount that they get. We don't know who's rejected. We don't know how much they're getting from Facebook and Google. And if they have reached a deal prior to this legislation, which these deals were struck because the legislation was coming. So Post Media, Globe and Mail, a lot of other newspapers got ahead of it and struck private deals with Facebook and Google. Like almost all of the mainstream newspapers have, have already done that. Then they don't need to be on this list. So I really do push back on this transparency question. But like trying to get your head around this it's not that media aren't trying, and it's noteworthy to me that it's the TV broadcasters who are not really implicated in the media bailout until now. They are now a part of this Google and Facebook thing. But the best coverage and the best scrutiny of Rodriguez did come from Global News and CTV and CBC. And Global ran a piece. These quotes are really worth paying attention to. They quoted Peter Menzies. So this is all going to be overseen by the CRTC, or rather a big piece of it is overseen by the CRTC. Here's what the former vice chair of the CRTC, Peter Menzies, had to say about this. This is a pure shakedown from what I can see. Entities that are losing money have successfully lobbied the government and used their own platforms in a biased fashion to campaign for money earned from other entities' innovation and endeavor. And uh, he said, I can't see it doing anything other than propping up failing business models at the expense of innovators and entrepreneurs. So we, we got the other side of the story from Global. CTV and CBC actually interviewed Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez. And I just want to play people like these interviews were really something. Why is it the government's job, Mr. Rodriguez, to make sure the media makes money? That's not our job at all. Actually, we're just setting the table where the two parties can come and negotiate. So it's, it's, this is really arm's length, uh, and uh, it's up to them to negotiate and strike a deal or not. If they don't, then they go to final arbitration uh, with independent arbitrators. It, we, we're not there. I guess I, I, I still am confused about how, if a government sets this up, how it, how it becomes a market. Like, there is government intervention, how it's just a market-based solution. Can you commit to transparency today so the, the public will know who gets the money, why they got the money, who was rejected, why they were rejected? Okay, for, first, all the criteria at the time were made public, and the, the name of the people in the panel and all that was made correct. What was not made uh, public is it's tax information. I mean, what you, would you say that say, okay, Evan, we're going to put your tax information public? I mean, no, that's not how things are done. But today, what I'm saying is that anyone that will participate to this will have to have the name on the list. Yes, I commit 100%. It's in the bill. Okay, I know this is under the CRA, that's why you're saying that, but there's no minutes for the meeting. Like, you understand some organizations will apply and not be eligible for any money, but they don't know why. Can they find out why? Can we find out at least how much money was given to an org? That's not tax information. If the government well, gives out a grant to someone, why can't we know that? Well, Evan, you're talking about CRA, you have to invite my colleague, Jean Boutier. It's, it's, I'm talking about my bill here. So, Olena, I think that, like, anybody who's trying to follow this at home, 
would be just stupefied. I mean, Vashi Capellos and Evan Solomon looked stupefied. They looked baffled. I mean, Vashi, like she just said, like, I'm confused. Right. And as I say, I think a lot of the confusion is intentional. I think that the government has made it so complicated that it's just kind of impossible to get your head around. And then there's also just like a lot of what you expect from politicians sort of spin if you watch those full interviews as the heritage minister says these counterfactual, strange, counterintuitive things. This is a market-based solution. We have nothing to do with this. We're just getting these two parties together. It's like, well, but they wouldn't be together if you weren't forcing them to be together. So, of course, this is the government getting involved. And in like a five-minute interview, it's near impossible to get any clarity about this. So, you know, he was doing his job as a politician to kind of like, I'll provide the interview, but I'm just going to like leave you. Like there's just – this is not a format where we could actually get to the bottom of it. But there's another thing that happened in the interview that I just want to take a moment to point out because I think that one of the reasons why it was confusing is because – Pablo Rodriguez himself was confused about his own legislation. He is asked by Evan Solomon, why are links compensatory? Why should Facebook or Google have to pay a news organization for links when anybody out there posts a link to a news story? Can you justify why links are considered compensatory? Because there, there's a value to that. Because if you click on the link and then you go to the news, there's a value to that. Everything you guys are doing, you being, generally speaking, in the media, has value. Journalists, they, they have study, they work, they develop their career, they make sacrifices, they write professional stuff, they do professional interviews like you do. You're extremely good at that. That has value. It has to be compensated. Rodriguez answered, like he defends the notion that why should they have to pay? Because links have value. Your Your work has value, Evan. News has value. And you can kind of approach that answer face value, which is to say, like, that actually doesn't make sense because, yes, links have value, value for Facebook. The reason why Facebook makes insane amounts of money is because people pay them to deliver links to the right people. It doesn't go the other way around. And news organizations want their links to show up on Facebook so that they have readers and they encourage their readers to link on Facebook. So it's a strange answer for that reason. But the reason I'm pointing it out is... He's defending something that is absolutely not going to be happening. The government takes no position and the legislation takes no position on paying for links or that Google and Facebook need to pay this amount of money for links. In fact, whatever it is that Google and Facebook are going to be paying the news organizations for, that's going to be privately determined and already has been privately determined, and it's a secret. We don't know if they're paying for the amount of news or the amount of traffic the news generates, but there's no way it's based on links because Facebook and Google can't control the number of links that people post on Facebook and Google. So the minister does not understand his own legislation. The whole thing is constructed in such a way of just to sort of say, you two are going to have to come to terms, and the public's never going to know what those terms are or how much money is involved. And if this all sounds like my pet peeve, that's a very technical thing that only a news publisher could care this much about... I just want people to think about what happens when news organizations get paid based on either how many articles they run or how many people click on those articles. What does that do to the actual news that people receive? That definitely does not add to the quality of the news. And I think especially given the minister's comment that now more than ever, Canadians need reliable and credible information, especially in a time of greater mistrust and disinformation. 
I feel like, first of all, these media organizations and publishers have to make sure their newsrooms have fact checkers in place to combat fake news and disinformation. But I don't think just running after a lot of headlines, knowing that you'll, you'll be paid more, will help to combat that. You know, I have to ask you this. What is happening now is a greater level of involvement from the government in the news media than we've ever had before in Canada. And I have to imagine that a reporter like yourself knows a thing or two about government involvement in media. Yes, indeed. And I feel um, this bill, unfortunately, can also accelerate the public's, you know, plummeting levels of trust in their news providers. Because if they know that government has a hand in it, it always will be a little bit suspicious. You know, it's just how Facebook and Twitter now brands all the news that are coming from, say, Russian state media. So at least we can know, like, okay, here's, you know, the source that we cannot really trust. While here we'll have this X number of organizations that will be directly dependent on the government's help on this. So, And also it might hurt innovation for the media and especially turn to digital first media. I feel like some of the classic organizations and publishers that did not make this move, that did not think how to make their news source appealing to readers, to young readers, will not even think about that because, hey, we're getting money anyway, so why should we think about exploring new ways to deliver information? Let me tell you that the Kiev Independent uh, was born because we all were part of the news organization called the Kiev Post, which uh, was Ukraine's oldest English-language newspaper. However, we all were fired because our publisher decided to install a new editor behind the back of chief editor and other editors, and we were against it. So one day we, we found out that we all lost our jobs. We were sad, but at the same time we knew that Ukraine needs this English voice, so we, we knew we have to get together and, and do the work. It, it was all happening in the end of last year, in November. And so we came together, we uh, preserved most of our newsroom, and we started thinking, okay, we, we do not have a publisher, uh, so we do not have any money coming in, what shall we do? So we started thinking and we launched our Patreon. We made sure that we think about different ways to engage with our readers and just started, you know, thinking and creating and making sure that we can have this media that is supported by the readers, that we involve some innovation things to it. We have almost 7,000 patrons, and the overall amount that we receive a month is $72,000. That's incredible. Yeah, and we are yeah, just a little startup media that had to develop amid, you know, all the turmoil and the war.
Olena, thank you for joining me on Shortcuts this week. Thank you so much for having me today. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. I can be emailed at jesse at CanadaLand.com. I read everything that people send. Olena, where can people find you and where can people find the Kiev Independent? So we are always happy to have readers visit our website, which is Kiev Independent, one word, uh, dot com. And uh, you can find me on Twitter and on LinkedIn. And I am Olena Goncharova on both of those platforms. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do at Canada Land, we need your help and we want to give you premium podcast feeds and socks and other good stuff. Please support us by hitting the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.